One of the things that we've been looking at over these past few weeks and we're continuing to do is to look at the various teachings of Jesus, not all of them, because there are many of them, but certain teachings of Jesus, which as he teaches and as he makes demands of us, he confronts some of our thinking. Now, when we come to the, the Gospels, that's the first four books of the New Testament, what we're reading there is, for the most part, certainly in the first, first three, the Gospel of John has a slightly different focus, but the first three Gospels, we're looking at a historical record of the life of Jesus. We're looking at the things that he taught, the things that he said. Now, interestingly, what we find is that what's taught and said in those particular verses, in those particular sections, it tends to be expanded on later on. We don't get a great deal of explanation of what the teaching means in the Gospels. What we get is what Jesus said. Now, we then have to develop that and we see that working out. But there are certain things that really confront us. Uh, And Jesus, as a character, really confronts particularly our society today. One of the things that he speaks about more than anybody else in the Bible is the issue of hell. Now, straight away, as soon as we talk about the issue of hell, in Western society and in our Western thinking, that creates all sorts of issues and problems. It becomes a difficulty to us because, well, I guess for many of us, we have the idea that that seems um, kind of draconian and overbearing and uh, impossible to conceive of a loving God who might eternally punish people. Uh, we, We have great difficulty and a great challenge when it comes to that issue. Uh, Now, we need to understand firstly, what do do we think we mean? One of the problems that we have is a whole history of particularly uh, the arts and uh, films and all of that kind of thing, which shape our thinking of what we think hell might be. So if we take our, uh, our imaginary trip around particularly the likes of Italy, we go into all of these magnificent uh, cathedrals and the likes, and we see Michelangelo's paintings, Signorelli's paintings, and we see these incredible portrayals of the kind of Um, pitchforked demons that are poking people into steaming cauldrons as an idea of hell. One of the important things that we need to understand is that the Bible never describes hell like that. It never describes hell like that, even though we've just read something that says uh, where the worm is continually eating and the fire never goes out. How can we say it never describes it like that and yet it describes it like that? The reason we can say that is because what the Bible is doing is precisely what those medieval medieval pictures are doing. They're painting in picture form to create in our minds not a realistic impression, but the seriousness of the issue. Now, we're talking about a time, particularly the medieval time, where there was massive illiteracy. It was only a relatively small number of people who were able to read, and so the way that messages were conveyed, generally speaking, was in pictorial form. It was trying to get the message over in a way that was easily communicated. Now, the challenge is that those ideas have continued, and they've kind of stuck in our minds as the descriptors of what we think 
uh, hell to be. So it kind of carries on. We've got uh, right the way through to the likes of uh, Walt Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame, where Frollo has this great big image of the ideas of hellfire playing out on the screen right in front of our children. So I just want to just make a quick sidebar there. Uh, If we're thinking about the discomfort of the ideas of hell, talking about it in this kind of context and talking about it from the Bible, we need to realize that our culture, right the way down to the children's films that are being produced, is, is talking about this issue. It's portraying it in lots of different ways. So let's see, what does the Bible actually have to say? It's a problem for us because we... Our idea is we have a a great comfort with the idea of a loving God who is kind and forgiving. Can I just say that if we were in a different part of the world, that idea would be a great challenge to us. Culturally, it would be a huge barrier to accepting the Christian message. So we're sat here today thinking the idea of hell, the idea of eternal punishment, is something which is a huge barrier to me thinking about the issues of the Christian faith. It's a huge barrier. The idea of a loving God who forgives would be equally as discomforting and challenging to another culture. A culture which demands what? A culture which demands and expects justice. So if we lived in a different culture, and there are many cultures in the world today which see that and expect that and hold on to that, the idea of a loving, forgiving God would be a real problem because God shouldn't be like that. God should be the kind of justice-bringing, absolute punishing God. You see the difference, you see the challenge. We see it from a particular perspective, and, and very often we have a kind of an intellectual arrogance which says, but our way must be the right way. Better than everybody else's in the world. Our way is the right way. What about... What about the possibility that the God of the Bible actually brings both of those ideas and at the same time challenges both of those ideas? What about if the God of the Bible doesn't sit within any one particular camp, but rather sits above and brings judgment on both of those perspectives. So where we might say God is a loving, forgiving God, and we we take that God and we make him ours, and we say that he's he's against all of those people who think about justice, we we kind of drag God down and and we own him, whereas others would say God is a God of justice and and the demands of punishment and and righteousness and and the need for justice, and we drag God down into our camp, uh, and we say that that God is now going to judge all of those people over there. What about if he sits and challenges both of us? I want to suggest that that is precisely the God of the Bible. Because he will confront us in our thinking. When we compartmentalize, when we reduce, when we think it's one or the other, he will challenge us and make demands of us. 
and then bring the greatest of hope to both of us. To both of us. Challenges both and brings hope to both. You see, the problem is, if we say he's either one or the other, that means that whichever side we happen to be on is the safe side. If he's both, we have the potential for him to bring hope to both. We're going to work it through, through this particular little section. Firstly, we're going to see that God reverses the ideas of worth. Secondly, we're going to see that God reverses the idea of exclusivity. Thirdly, we're going to see that he reverses the idea of moral acceptability. And then we're going to see how that works out. So the first thing that he does is he reverses the idea of worth. We're breaking into this little section partway through. It's a fairly lengthy uh, reading. Jesus is with his disciples. And as they're walking along, they're trying to work out, well, here we are. We are this group of 12. We're, We're the followers of Jesus. There is actually, as you start to read the accounts of Jesus's life, there's, if you like, there are circles of contacts There are an inner group of 12 who are very close to Jesus. Then there are a wider group of disciples who who, uh, go on mission on behalf of Jesus. And then there's a wider group of the followers of Jesus, people who are following him as he travels around and as as he teaches. Jesus' closest 12, the disciples, are very... I guess, confident and and hopeful in the idea that they are so close to him. And as they're traveling along, we realize that what they've been discussing is when the kingdom comes, when Jesus becomes this king who's promised, who amongst all of us is going to be the most prominent? And there's this kind of argument and debate is going on as they're walking along. Now, that sounds just like worth, doesn't it? It says, I'm worthy. What have I done to be worthy? What have I done to to, uh, be in that special place of being a real follower of Jesus? Those of you who know some of the characters of Jesus' disciples, you probably might guess, this is speculation, but I'm guessing that Peter would have been right up there with all sorts of ideas of why he should be the most prominent. Because he's done this and he's done that uh, and he's been willing to do this and willing to do that and he's absolutely committed. You can imagine the discussion and the debate going on. Jesus comes along and he says this. To be prominent in my kingdom, in fact to be a part of my kingdom, is not about elevation It's not about achievement, it's about servanthood. Look at the way he works it out. What were you arguing about on the road? They kept quiet. Isn't that interesting? They kept quiet. (laughs) So how was the conversation, guys, while I was 15 yards ahead? Yeah, let's keep quiet about that. Let's not mention it. There was an inner something, I guess, with the disciples. There was something inside that persuaded them in their thinking that even though they'd been debating it, it couldn't really be the way they'd been talking about. 
They kept quiet. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be uh, first must be the very last and the servant of all. Then he took a little child whom he placed amongst them. Taking the child in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. That is a remarkable statement that Jesus makes. He's taking culturally, socially, somebody of incredibly low status. Children had no status. Male children had slightly greater status in the culture of the day, but children had no status until the point where they became adults and particularly in the structure of the day where men became, uh, where young boys became men and then they had status. He took somebody with no status and placed that child in the middle of them and he said, you've got to be like this. You've got to be somebody, effectively, with no status. You've got to be like a little child. There's all sorts of other ways. Jesus used this picture time and time again. There's all sorts of ways in which that is being used. Not least it is, uh, a a child is utterly dependent. Uh, A child looks to the parents for care, for support, for help. Uh, A child doesn't have, well, (laughs) yeah, Apart from inherent sin, a child doesn't have any kind of arrogance, uh, and that's kind of where there's a limitations to the picture. But there is, a, there is a dependence. There is no expectation. Jesus says, you have to be like this. You see, to be in relationship with me, what is he actually saying? It is not about what you have done. It's not about, therefore, whether you can justify all the reasons that you should be a priority in the kingdom. It's about whether you are in that family relationship with me. Now, look at what Jesus says. It's the kind of statement that got Jesus killed. Really important to see what he says. He goes on to say, whoever receives me basically welcomes me, doesn't only welcome me, but they welcome the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is relating his relationship with the God of heaven in such a way that says, if you welcome me, it's like welcoming the God in heaven. That is just like the blue touch paper for the gathering around him at that time. If there were any of the religious leaders listening on to this, that would have been just absolutely breathtakingly offensive. The idea that Jesus could equate relationship with God through him. He actually goes on to say it really clearly. John chapter 14 verse 6 he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's about a fatherly relationship. Isn't that interesting that there is a connection there with a child? So the first thing he wants to make clear is relationship with God, and therefore we're assuming on eternal relationship with God, is not down to how much you are worth 
or I am worth in terms of what we have received. I think that as the disciples thought about that, as they worked it out, it, it kind of played into the next set of questions, the next bit of discussion. One of the things that religion tends to do, it tends to create exclusivity. It tends to create a superiority, uh, a, a kind of an us and them kind of mindset. Now, Jesus absolutely makes it clear. He makes it really clear that there is a separation. But there is a tendency in us, in that kind of exclusivity and separation, to get really arrogant. Now, the next thing that Jesus does is he reverses our ideas of exclusivity. Look at the way it pans out and see how that works. The next little picture we see is, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. (laughs) There's that picture. He's saying, look, as we were walking along, there was somebody doing the kind of things that we do, but he wasn't one of our gang. He wasn't one of our 12. He, he, therefore, can't possibly be in relationship with you. He's the outsider. Now look at what Jesus does. He makes absolute priority, not about, actually, look at the way the story story, uh, works out. He's driving out demons. He's exorcising demons. Uh, And Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a miracle in my name, no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Here's the thing. This person is doing something in my name, therefore if it's in my name, they can't turn round against me. Now look at what he then equates something in my name. The next thing that he relates in my name to is the idea of giving somebody a drink of water. Look at that. What a contrast. One is exercising demons. The other is giving a drink of water, he says. Truly I tell you, verse 41, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Isn't that amazing? What Jesus is saying here is exclusivity is not whether you belong to this inner circle. Exclusivity is whether you are in my name. It's not about whether you belong to this church or whether you belong to that church or whether you follow a pattern of Christian uh, worship which looks like this or looks like that. It's whether you truly are in my name. I think that is massively important for us to work out as we think about our own particular situation, as we think about our relationships with all sorts of others around. It is so easy. To create a sense of exclusivity and arrogance. A kind of an idea that uh, we're the in crowd. You know, we're the ones who are in there. 
Uh, exactly what the disciples are doing here at this point in time. They're saying, we're the inner circle. He's doing that over there. It looks like, uh, it looks right, but to, to be honest, he's not one of us. Therefore, he can't possibly. And then Jesus says, no, real relationship with me is being in my name. So what have we done here? What has Jesus done already? Two things which I think the Western mind feels really comfortable with. We don't have any problems with the idea of inclusivity and relationship. We feel really comfortable with those kind of things. Equality and e- inclusivity, that's, that's great. We all feel great with that. Now, just before we start, let me remind you that there would be another group of people who would be listening to that and thinking... I feel really uncomfortable with the idea of that. Do you see how Jesus challenges certain ways of thinking? If you think that relationship is about exclusivity, if you think that relationship is about uh, moral superiority or the things that you have done, then you will find what Jesus has been saying in these verses up to now a real challenge. And I just say it's really easy to fall into that trap. It's really easy for us to think that relationship with Jesus is about what we have done. It's about whether we've lived right. It's about whether we've done the right things. Whether we look like we're the right kind of people. The kind of people that moral worth, behavioral patterns feel really comfortable with. And Jesus stands in the face of that and as the outlaw to those ideas, he outlaws our thinking. He outlaws that. He says you can't think like that. And we think that's great. Now we move on to this next section which is hugely challenging. Hugely challenging. Jesus goes on to say, In fact, let's ask the question. Does it therefore mean that our patterns of behavior are irrelevant? There's the question, up front. If it's all about just relationship, does that mean that we can live however we want to live? This is where Jesus confronts that way of thinking. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Wow. There is no holding back there, is there? There is no holding back in terms of the seriousness of behavior and the demands that Jesus makes. If you offend one of my children... It would be better for you to have a millstone round your neck and thrown into the sea. That, that, that picture, if you just dwell on that picture even for a moment, it fills me with horror. It fills me with horror. I mean, I'll be honest with you. One of my greatest fears in life is the idea of drowning. It terrifies me, the idea of drowning. And Jesus is saying the reality is that the seriousness of behaviors means that it would be better if you were drowned. Better if you were drowned. 
Jesus, Jesus does not hold back. Now look at how he carries on. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. We're gonna, we're gonna, he talks in three ways. He talks about the hand, he talks about the foot, and he talks about the eye. Three ways in which there is offense by our behavior which can cause eternal separation from God. Look at the ways describing it. There is a way in which your hand, your foot, or your eye can cause you eternal separation from God. A kind of separation that a fire that never goes out. In other words, the kind of separation is, is a, a separation of ongoing judgment. And one of the things that Jesus makes really clear, I believe, in the New Testament, is he makes really clear that true judgment is separation from God. In other words, if God in his being, in his character, is the source of all good, all good, there is no good in the whole of the cosmos outside of God, then there can be no greater judgment than being separated from that goodness. That's what Jesus makes really clear. He makes it clear that that really is what punishment is. It's described like a fire that is burning. I made some, um, we were cooking last night, Rach and I, and um, I was doing the, doing the chips. In, well, Rachel was doing the chips. Uh, and I was just lifting them out of the pan and putting them in the hot fat. And um, kind of dropping chips into hot fat from the oven uh, about an inch and a half as they splash is not a good thing. I was bouncing up and down and this, this oil on the end of my fingers was just, conti- it kind of burned uh, and then as it cooled down it burnt a little bit more and then it just carried on burning and it just reminded me there is, there is a, a, a growing pain of separation. Somebody described it like this. Uh, imagine, imagine somebody who becomes estranged from their family because of their behaviors. Their behaviors eventually, whatever it might be, become so intolerable that the family says, look, you can no longer be with us. You've got to be separated. You, you've just got to leave. You've got to go. Uh, And because of that separation, what happens? There is a growing and growing and growing sense of bitterness. Paint the scene in your minds. Christmas comes. It's a dark night. The lights are on. You can see into the house. The family are having a great time. And the person who is separated is outside. It's very unlikely that that... Very unlikely, not impossible... But if we work with the picture, it's very unlikely that that person outside is going to look on and justify that family's decision to separate them out. 
it's far more likely that they are going to justify their behavior and give every reason why they shouldn't be separated or why that group of people who are in there who are having a good time are wrong. And bitterness grows and bitterness grows and bitterness grows. Imagine that kind of self-serving bitterness growing inside of you or me for all of eternity. I think that that's the kind of burning and the kind of gnashing of teeth that the Bible is describing, where my self-centeredness grows and grows and grows and I become ever, ever more self-justifying and self-righteous and filled with insular separation and hatred. Why? Because I am separated from any goodness and any redemption and any help. That's the kind of separation I think I'm talking about. But look what Jesus says. He talks absolutely about personal accountability which causes that separation. He says there are ways that that separation can result. Therefore, if you're doing something with your hands and, and you really cut your hand off, <laughs> cut your foot off, Pluck your eye out. I love the way Jesus talks in one sense. Not because he's saying literally cut your hand off, cut your foot off, pluck out your eye. But to realize how serious it is. This is a really, really serious thing. It is so serious you'd be better to not have a hand in this life if it meant that you could preserve all of life in eternity, it would be better to chop off your hand. Now, that sounds fine, apart from, apart from, there's another part of the Bible where Jesus is talking, where he talks about the problem inside, in the hearts, in the heart. He says that's where the real issue is. That's where the problem really exists. It's a problem of our hearts. For out of our heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. It's in here. What's in here erupts out to here, to here, and to here. Now think about the implications of that. If the problem is deep down in here, then the reality is, then chopping off my hand is not going to solve that problem, is it? If the problem is deep down inside of my heart, then plucking out my eye is not really going to solve it. Yes, it paints a picture to realize how desperately important and personally accountable I am for my behavior, but it also makes me realize the reality is I am so guilty I am so guilty that if I went down this line of chopping bits off, self-amputation would actually end up resulting in me having to self-amputate every part of my body, including my mind and my heart, because I am that much in trouble. I am that much in trouble. And what has Jesus done there? He's confronted those who think 
that God is only a God who is interested only in being loving and kind and compassionate and is not a God who is willing to judge. Now, the reality is we all know that we need a God who judges. We know that deep down. We might not like the idea when it starts to get personal like this, but when we look at some of the things that go on in our world, we know that we need some kind of ultimate justice. The idea that there are certain behaviors uh, and there are certain things that people seem to get away with, we know that we need some kind of ultimate justice. We know that we can't live in a world where somebody can be absolutely terrible in terms of humanity around and line their own pockets and have a great life and not ultimately be accountable for that. A few years ago I was in Burma. At the time, the leader of the Burmese country was a a guy by the name of Thang Shui. Thang Shui at the time uh, paid, you ready for this, $25 million on his daughter's wedding. $25 million on his daughter's wedding. That was the equivalent to the gross domestic product of the country of Burma for something like three weeks. While his armies are literally murdering and raping villagers around the country, where his armies are imposing all sorts of draconian measures on people in towns and cities, where he is lining and and literally fleecing the country, imposing a draconian, horrific, awful, terrible system of justice and then he retires and he has a great life and then he probably dies. Can we live with the idea that that can happen and there is no ultimate justice? No, we can't. We need an ultimate justice. We need that. The reality is that we just don't like where God places it. We like it to be placed on all of those really bad people. But Jesus places it on everybody. He says, if your hand offends you, then cut it off because your hand can cause you to be separated from the God of heaven for all of eternity. Hang on a sec, Jesus. Are you equating the idea of some minor misdemeanor with the kind of things that are going on in Burma? And Jesus says, well... Yes, because the demands of the God of heaven are like that. So he confronts those who think that God is not a God of justice. Now, that sounds like both groups are now in real trouble. And then Jesus steps in. Because actually what Jesus does in his person, in his life, is he reconciles those two issues. He says, I am a God of love and I am a God of justice. The the words that are used are actually quite interesting. Jesus says, cut it off. In other words, it's better to be cut off or to have parts of you cut off 
and to be united with God. I want to read you a few verses that describe the life of Jesus and what he did from Isaiah chapter 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is talking about Jesus. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off. In other words, Jesus, the one who had no reason whatsoever to ever cut off a hand, ever cut off a foot, or ever pluck out an eye, in his whole being was cut off from his Father in heaven. He was cut off completely and utterly. He was cut off. To display what? A God of love and mercy. A God of love and mercy which holds together what we know and we believe of that kind of God and at the same time holds together the fact that God needs to be a just God. A God who demands justice. And Jesus reconciles both of those. He says, I am the one who gets cut off completely. Not just a part of me, completely. I am completely cut off from my Father in heaven. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. From the, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. In other words, there is a sense in which the life of Jesus, in its perfection and in his death, becomes the punishment for the people. For the people. As Jesus says here, for these little ones who believe in me. He becomes the one who is punished for these little ones who he cares for, who he gives himself for, who believe in me. Now that makes absolute sense of what Jesus says in verse 35. Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. Who becomes the servant of all? Because Jesus is actually saying you can't even become the servant of all completely. You can't do it. If you think that you can live a moral life and become the servant of all, that won't work either because actually becoming the servant of all becomes the one who gives himself completely. Becomes the very last. Becomes what we read of Jesus as being the one who is so disfigured in his giving that he is unrecognizable. He becomes the last, he becomes the lowest, he becomes the one who hangs on a cross or hangs on a tree and actually, according to the Bible, becomes hated by God. Anathema, cut off, separated. You see, the reality is, Jesus says you cannot live a life of goodness which is acceptable and you are guilty. So worth isn't going to work. 
exclusivity isn't going to work. Moral acceptability isn't going to work. But relationship with me is. That's what it's all about. That is what faith actually is. Relationship with Jesus. Trust in him. What does trust look like? It means that I can stand here and you can stand here and you can say, if I look at my life, the reality is there are a thousand times when I should have cut off my hand, cut off my foot, plucked out my eye. There are a thousand times when I look back. And if I'm going to be honest with myself, there are going to be a thousand times into the future when I'm going to have to pluck out my eye, cut off my hand, cut off my foot, because I know I can never live a life which is morally acceptable to God. But my Savior has been cut off for me. Now that is about relationship. It's about trust, believing that when God says, that's good enough, I believe it. That's what faith is. Faith believes that what God says. He says, that sacrifice is good enough. Don't worry about everything else. Don't worry about trying to be good enough. Don't leave here today thinking, after hearing this sermon, I'm going to have to really, really work desperately hard so that I'm good enough for God because it's so serious I should cut off hands and feet and pluck out eyes. Don't do that. Believe that Jesus has been cut off for you. And therefore enjoy a life of seeking to serve him in obedience. That's what it's all about. You see how Jesus stands above those two ideas. Guilt and justice, he holds the two together. That's great news. But the reality is, he actually makes a demand of us, doesn't he, still? And the demand is not to go away and to absolutely live a life that's good enough. He says, I demand of you that you believe me. I demand that you believe me. I demand that you put your faith and your trust in me and find your hope in me because I am the one who holds the two together. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that's cleared out. One of the most challenging bits of the Bible, the bit that talks about strange mutilation, talks about the issues of hell, And I hope it's made us realize that the God who we worship is a God of relationship who invites us to know him.